and welcome to another episode of Cinema Oblivion, your podcast for discussions on weird movies, old movies, and such. As usual, I'm your host, James Eldred, and who's back today? I am Anthony Abbott, and I am very happy to talk to you today about this movie. Yes, today we are talking about 1954's Them. Uh, this movie uses they, them pronouns. I don't know. I, 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 I was workshopping like 10 them jokes in my head, and none, <laughs> none of them were good, and like, don't take that joke as a slight against anybody. Um, trans lives matter and, 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 and fuck Florida. But anyway, um, before I talk about this them, um, Anthony, you seen anything else recently? Anything, anything you want to talk about? Bring up really quick. Um, the only things I've been watching recently were like, <laughs> I was rewatching the Fast and Furious movies because that's part of who mm-hmm. I am. Uh, oh, that's fine. That, yeah. yeah, just kind of random things here and there, but mostly Fast and Furious movies. So, Did you see the new one? I actually have, yes. Was it good? Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, if you're a fan of the franchise at this point, it's as ridiculous as the previous ones. And uh, they definitely set up that, hey, this is leading to a bit more. That's all I'll say without spoiling anything. Because okay. I haven't seen, I didn't see nine. I got to watch nine still. Uh, but now I kind of got to go back and watch more of them. I think I'm going to I'm gonna restart. I'm gonna, I, my boyfriend's never seen part two because um, we skipped it. Uh but I think I might watch that one and then go go to five, six, seven, eight, nine. You know, I was I would say it's worth rewatching um, because this movie almost makes reference to like almost all the previous movies in some kind of way. Wait, Rita Moreno's in this movie? I'm just looking. At she the is. Cat. Yeah, Fucking she is. Duck. Finally, yeah. a movie with Rita Moreno, <laughs> Helen Mirren, and Jason Momoa. I mean, yeah. <laughs> actually, those are like three things I love for very for very different reasons. Um, <laughs> so, no. <laughs> anyway, um, recently I've been watching um, all kinds of garbage, but um, I think the two most recent ones of note that don't involve giant bugs or or will not be on this podcast later, I watched um, Vamp last weekend. Vamp is a 1986 vampire film with Grace Jones. Oh, wow. As the vampire, but she has no dialogue. It's a strange movie. It's very low budget. It has... Nobody else of note really except Gideon Watanabe, who was Long Duck Dong in 16 Candles. Um, and uh, it's good. It's worth watching if you like. It is extremely 80s. Um, uh, the lighting is almost synthwave, but it's all per- it's all, all the lighting is like purple and green. It's very strange. And it's it's definitely a lesser vampire film when you compare it to like Fright Night or Lost Boys or, or even Neo Dark. I would say of the of those, it's the, it's the worst one, but it's still fun, and it has it's one of the, it's a very strange film that it starts very slow, but the second act is fantastic, and then the ending's kind of meh. I still like it; it's a good dumb movie, and Grace Jones is fucking terrifying. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, think, I think the only Grace Jones movies I've seen were uh, her in the second Conan movie, and then her in one of the James Bond movies, Beautiful Kill. Yes. I mean, she's not in a ton of movies. She's in these. She's in Boomerang. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. But I don't remember her role in Boomerang. And then a lot of really small stuff and, like, concert videos and, um, like, nothing really major. She's not a, you know, I think you've seen her biggest roles, you know. So uh, I love Grace Stone's music. So, I, and, and like, yo, she has a... Uh, she has an energy 
<laughs> she for sure does. Yes, she is terrifying. She has a strong presence. She has a strong presence. Yes, yes. A, a nice way to... Have you ever seen those photos of her and Dolph Lundgren? Not recently, but I do remember seeing those. Because they were yeah. a couple. Yeah. They would have had terrifying children. <laughs> Just like mountains of, 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 of child. But anyway, I also watched... Um, then that, that night, uh, I watched The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2 which is a documentary about heavy metal. I need uh, to watch that. Oh, Matt. So I have seen this movie dozens of times. Well, not, not dozens. I've seen this movie a lot. I used to, I, I rented it at a video store on VHS tape, and it was out of print forever due to rights issues, so I bought a bootleg of it on DVD. It came out on Blu-ray a few years ago. Um, every time I watch this movie, I get shit drunk. Because... It's kind of like I said in my view on on Letterbox. It is. It's okay. Now bear with me. This is a, this is a labor comparison, but mm. <laughs> it's kind of like Kendrick Lamar's swimming pools <laughs> because <laughs> yep. it's supposed to be a carcinary tale about excess. But every time I hear swimming pools, I want to get fucked up. Yeah, and so kind of it's it's like that. It's like that whole movie song like don't don't put marbles in your nose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like so. Whenever I see the bass player from Wasp drinking vodka out of the bottle in a swimming pool while his mom looks on in disdain, I'm like, that looks like fun. Um, the only time I've puked from drinking is, from the, is, is after watching this movie. Oh, yeah. So it is. It is. It is dangerous for me, but I love it, and it is by the. It is by Penelope Spears. Who went on, you know, to direct a Wayne's World? Uh, oh, okay, I knew that name yes. sounded familiar. Yes, and 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 for some reason, Little Rascals. So it's it's a it's a it's an amazing film. Decline of Western Civilization Part One is also very good, but it's more of an actual actual like good movie, uh, and that's about punk rock, and that has the Germs, um, Black Flag, Circle Jerks, Fear, and X. And I've never seen Part Three because Part Three, I guess, is like super depressing. It's all about homeless gutter punks who all like all sniff glue. Um, oh, that's a that's a hell of a turn. I thought it'd be like another musical documentary. It is well, it is. It's about crust punk, which is like a super like indie punk scene. Um, oh, okay. But just, that doesn't sound like fun to me. Like I, if, if I want to see people destroy their lives, I want to see you know hair metal. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but Decline Two has Megadeth, um, Poison, Faster Pussycat, and a ton of bands you've never heard of. Uh, and interviews with Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Aerosmith, M- Lemmy, um, an amazing interview of Ozzy Osbourne. It's it's a fantastic movie. I, I if you haven't seen it, to anybody listening, I, and you like, and you have even a passing interest in metal or just idiots, just I mean, because <laughs> some of these people, I mean, like you you also you watch. I'll, I'll move on in a second, but like the interview of Poison is great because it is clear that CC DeMille is high as a fucking kite, which is on brand for him because I think he's on Celebrity Rehab at one point. But like, and like other people just seem, and like the, the interview metal fans, and some of them just seem stoned out of the fucking gourd. Um, so it's it's a fun it's a fun watch. It's irresponsible, but you know, so am I. But anyway. <laughs>
So today I wanted to talk about them. Now, Anthony, you had never seen this film before, correct? No, it's a movie I've always been aware of, and I feel like I've seen just clips of it, like referenced in other things, but I've never seen the whole thing until we we talked about doing it for this show. Yeah. So why did you want to talk about them? So I want to say when I was maybe eight or nine, uh, my uncle showed me a lot of classic movies that he grew up on. And some of the first, like, two kind of monster movies I ever saw were The Creature from the, from the Black Lagoon, which Fuck I loved, yeah. and The Thing from Another World, uh, which I'm sure we'll get to. Yeah, we'll, talk, know, talk, we'll the, talk about that, yeah. Yeah, one of the cast members here, also in that movie. Um, so much so, like, that movie was, the, the Thing from Another World was such a big movie for me that when the John Carpenter movie, like, was something I was aware of later, I was, I think, the only kid my age that was aware it was a remake of a movie from the 50s and um then then like later well yeah i never said it but i was always like wait this movie's been made before like you know i was that that kid but um elementary school horror movie hipster okay oh yeah yeah i was terrible um but in the in the 90s when that john uh john goodman movie matinee came out oh yeah uh, that was the kind of, you know, thing that I figured them was, you know, it was a movie like that that they were making fun of, like The Tingler and all of these movies you see in the 50s back in the day with like these, like, you know, gimmicky things in the theaters and everything. So I had an idea of what I thought this movie was, which was not too far off, but it was actually so much different than I expected. But yeah, I was, uh, as, as someone who's aware of this for a long time and a fan of classic horror movies, I was kind of surprised I hadn't seen it before. Yeah, I, I think... um because of later films in this genre, which we'll touch upon later, I think them maybe to a modern audience, they might not understand what kind of movie it is. And I feel like them in the pantheon of giant bug movies, them is the American version of the first Godzilla. In that I, it is yes. deathly serious. It is deathly serious. There's no wink at the audience. It's not. A, it's not. I mean, it's fun to watch, but it's not like a, a, a lighthearted romp. They're talking about the world ending. <laughs> yeah. Well, honestly, so, yeah. Before, before we got into this, I thought it was going to be like, you know, super cheesy, you know, B-movie. That would be something you would see like on, you know, on a Mystery Science Theater 3000, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in my notes, I at some point put this is like the American Godzilla because it's their movie and their way of dealing with what the results of the atomic bomb was, right? Whereas like... Godzilla, of course, Japan's version of like this is like this mm-hmm. giant horrible thing, and this almost felt like the you know American movie version of like oh this horrible thing that we caused this is us dealing with the repercussions of it you know, and I had that thought the whole movie. That's yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, because Godzilla's kind of like Japan dealing with what was brought upon them, and and them is about what we've brought upon ourselves. Yeah, yeah, and really quick, I discovered this film. You know, I wanted to talk about this film because uh, we're coming up on, you know, an anniversary of my dad's passing, and them was a movie that he introduced to me, and he used to tell me this story. So he saw them when it came out, and he was probably six or seven, and he saw it in the theater with his oldest sister, and after the movie was over, he was too scared to walk home. Oh wow! Uh, because it fucked up him so much, and then I just love that. That's his memory of them. And then, you know, 30 years later, he's like, I'll show my kid this. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you when he showed it to you? I was about five, five or six. <laughs> um, but I loved it. And I think I think it was just um it was it was hokey enough for me at, as an 80s kid 
to realize it was fake. Yeah. You know, and so I wasn't scared of it. But I just, and I also at the time I was one of those kids who loved insects and bugs and shit. So yeah. like it was right up my alley and I loved it. And it kind of set me on a path in the 80s of being way into old horror movies. Not well, old old adventure and old sci-fi. Like like this kind of set me on a path to like Frey Harryhausen. And that you know, like sense. um it it creates it from from whatever the sea or like um the Sinbad movies and and uh, Jason and the Argonauts and and all that stuff and my dad and I kind of bonded a lot with that stuff. We didn't watch it together because my parents were divorced at the time, but he would bring stuff from the video store for me to watch. Yeah, and then I would watch it, and so that's how I. This was kind of the entry point for that, and then I hadn't seen it. Ooh, I think the probably the last time I saw them until relatively recently, I was probably probably in before high school, but I was probably still a kid. And then I revisited it, I think probably right before the pandemic, and I was I was surprised how much it held up, and just how interesting it is. And then I've I've sorted to a few friends, and they they all agree that this movie is much better than they thought it would be. <laughs> I was so. surprised also at how well paced it was for how old it is, because a lot of classic movies tend to feel like they dragon bits. Um, but man, it's, it's something about this felt almost kind of modern with the pacing of it. And it's a movie that I know there's other stuff like movies that are clearly like inspired by this that have been made like recently, but mm-hmm. it felt like a movie that would be made today with just like the, the way that some of the beats were hit and the pacing of it. And kind of the only exception, of course, being not so much the practical effects, but the quality of the practical effects. But other than that, this felt like a movie you would probably see coming out today. I think the only difference you would get today is that they would have more action in the middle. There'd probably yeah. be a longer scene because it, it goes. There is like at a certain point, the film becomes an investigation, and with the exception of a very brief shot on a ship, there are not much, there are not many ants for like twenty five minutes. So I feel like nowadays they'd have to make that scene longer. And we would also have way more ants than we ever got in this movie. Way too. more ants because there's only we'll talk about that. There's only two ants on screen moving at any time because they only had two. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> kind of like aliens. <laughs> if you watch aliens, I think they only had five suits. So oh, yeah, they no, just make it feel like more though. At no point in Aliens is, is there a big swarm. It's all editing. Yeah. Um, you know, because James Cameron knows how to make a movie. Um, also, no, also knowing how to make a movie is people involved with this. Because I think one reason why this movie is so good is that a lot of good people are involved in this movie uh, about giant killer ants. So this was directed by Gordon Douglas, who I've talked about before because I covered his last film on this podcast. His last film was Viva Knievel. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, he had a long career. He started in the 20s as an actor. I talked to him before. He did win an Oscar um, for Best Short Film. He directed an R-Gang film, you know, Little Rascals. Yeah. Um, the only one that won, an As- that won an Oscar. And he directed a ton of other movies. He worked with Frank Sinatra a lot. He worked with Doris Day, my girl. Um, he worked with Doris Day and Frank Sinatra. The same year this came out, he made Young at Heart, which is a really good movie. Um and in like Flint, they call me Mr. Tibbs, uh, Slaughter's Big Ripoff. So big career from like low budget stuff to big budget stuff to kind of, I guess, like black exploitation near the end. Um, it's got a wide range of, of stuff in his filmography, too. Yeah, like, really all over the place. Yeah, yeah, really, really diverse filmography. And I think everything I've seen him make, everything I've seen by him, and which isn't a ton, like I've seen. Viva Knievel has a lot of problems, but the direction is not one of them. <laughs> it's a well, <laughs> it's a well, it's a good looking movie, and like um, 
Young at Heart is a fantastic melodrama. Like if you just like that made my boyfriend just weep. And um that is a fun one because it's three sisters falling in love with three men, and one of the men is Frank Sinatra, who's, you know, fucking Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Uh, the other is Gig Young, who at the time was kind of a heartthrob. And the third is Alan Hale, who was the skipper. <laughs> on oh, Gilligan's Island. Yeah. So one, one of them kind of gets, familiar. you know, oh well. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but no, it's a good one. And in like Flint's a cool movie. Those are fun movies. I've always wanted to see They Call Me Mr. Tibbs. Um, but those get so much worse reviews in the first movie. Uh, you know, the, yeah. the Tibbs sequels. Um, but I just, I just love Sidney Poitier. And I've never seen Slaughter's Big Ripoff. Uh, but I've seen, a, I think that is, um, is that Tim Brown? I don't know, actually. I need to look yeah, that's Tim Brown. Rest in peace. He just passed away. Okay. Um, I haven't seen Slaughter's Big Ripoff. I have seen other last person films with, with Jim Brown, but not that one. I got to check that one out. Cause that, 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 cause Jim Brown was cool in those movies. Um, my dad's, my dad's favorite football player. Jim Brown was amazing. That's, I, I've never heard of Solaris Ripoff until now though. Yeah, good name for a movie. Um, yeah, yeah, it's I, a strong I, I, name. I, strong name. That's by the guy who wrote Hammer. Hammer is a great movie too. Uh, that's with Fred Williamson. But anyway, yeah, yeah, Gordon Douglas, great director, and a few people wrote this. And here's a problem with a movie like them: nobody cares about them, <laughs> so <laughs> anymore. Nobody, nobody. Okay, when you read about them, you read about. The um, the atomic energy part of it, and 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 the zeitgeist, and and its influence. There are no articles about the writer of them. <laughs> nobody, nobody wants to go deep on that. Um, there are three writers on this. Um, um Ted, Ted, I don't even know how to say that name. Sherdeman, Russell Hughes, and George Worthing Yates. Russell Hughes and Ted. They didn't write a lot. They mostly wrote. T- um, they mostly wrote TV. Russell Hughes wrote eight million westerns um, before he died young in 1958. And Ted Sudeman, he wrote for Sinatra a few times. He also wrote uh, the Winning Team with Doris Day, another Doris Day connection. And then he also wrote Bewitched, uh, My Favorite Martian, <laughs> The Flying Nun. Uh, oh wow! A lot of TV. The, the main person behind this is George Worthing Yates, from what I can tell. He wrote the story treatment that was unadapted. And he wrote a ton of sci-fi and adventure and genre and just B-movies. I, I really feel like he's, a, he's an author who doesn't get his, his just due because he wrote Pulp. But he wrote the first long Lone Ranger serial. He wrote the first, Sin, the first major Sinbad movie, Sinbad the Sailor. He wrote It Came From Beneath the Sea, which is a great Ray Harryhausen movie. He wrote Earth versus the Flying Saucers with fucking rules. That is the 1950s version of Independence Day. Um, if you want to see stop motion, the stop motion um, watching the monument get destroyed by aliens. That movie's fantastic. And a lot of other stuff like that. Amazing Colossal Man, you know, Attack of the Puppet People. You know, not so good. But, you know, he, 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 had a, he had a wheelhouse and he stuck to it. Have you seen any of these movies? I, I bet you, you've probably seen a few of them, Mystery, Mystery Science Theater. 
Uh, well, I know I've seen some about the sailor, like stuff like that randomly, like on TV back in the day. Um, I probably have seen a lot of these from MSC3K, but yeah, this, I mean, all of this just sounds like them was perfectly in his wheelhouse. Like it fits in with all of the, all these other titles. It makes yeah, sense. He would, he would be like the, the writer to have the most influence on this. Yeah. Cause he also wrote the spider, which is an, a, an earth versus the spider, which is a later, a later giant bug movie. Um, he also wrote a film I know nothing about that's just called This Woman is Dangerous. I just like the title. Yo, This Woman I, is Dangerous. Yeah, I kind of want to find a trailer for that just to see, based uh, on that title, what that is. Oh, and it ha- oh and the, woman in, the woman in question is Joan Crawford. So, yo, that woman is dangerous. I'll bet she slapped somebody in it, too. Oh, I bet she. Have you ever seen any Joan Crawford films? Uh, no, but I'm just always aware she's always played these characters that like have reputations for being like this badass woman. Like Joan Crawford's the white Grace Jones. <laughs> okay, there you go. Yep, <laughs> totally understand you. <laughs> don't 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 fuck with her. She will murder your family. There's there's a great movie, uh, Sudden Fear, with her and um, um, Jack Palance. Um, from from City Slickers, you know Jack yeah, Palance, yeah. and he's the bad guy, and he's trying to kill her. But motherfucker, you're trying to kill Joan Crawford. Oh man, it's, it's not gonna work. But yeah, uh, this movie actually them played in a, in a double feature with Johnny Guitar, which is a western with Joan Crawford, and one of the strangest westerns you'll ever see. And that has Ernest Borgnine and John Carradine in it, and. It's an oddly feminist film and oddly violent for the era and very good movie. So if 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 you want to recreate a double a nineteen fifty four double feature, watch uh, Johnny Guitar and them. But anyway, um, a couple of people, one more person behind the scenes, really quick. I just want to point out that the cinematographer is Sidney Hitchcock, and I only point that out for two things. One is an interesting guy because he was born in eighteen ninety five and started working in nineteen sixteen. So, and he worked pretty much up until 1971. So most of the century. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he started so young. Like he started so young. He started in silent. He started in silent film and edited on the Andy Griffin and ended ended as the director of photography on the Andy Griffin show. He, he kind of worked through the evolution of film, like from silent through like talking to like black and white to color, and, like and yeah, and the evolution of TV. Um, Oh yeah, and yeah. And I wanted to bring him up. I wanted to bring him up because he is the second director on I featured on this podcast who was a um, I love Lucy. I love Lucy director. Oh okay. Because the first was um, William Asher, the director of Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Um, he saw, he was he, he he, but William Asher invented the sitcom format for directing. He 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 popularized a three camera setup and all that stuff, and he directed I Love Lucy and Bewitched, and he was married to Elizabeth, Elizabeth Montgomery. And I would imagine that Sidney Hitchcock probably worked with him at some point. I mean, so. in all of his years of working, he had to work with everybody at some point. It seems. Yeah, it's a hell of a career. Like if you look, <laughs> if you it's it's really spectacular. If you look at his um filmography, just just TV alone, back in the day, like he was he I Love Lucy. Um, the Lucy Desi Comedy Hour, um, I Spy, unfortunately, um, Andy Griffin Show, and then before that in film, like he worked, he did um, the Winning Team, which is another Doris Day film, um, Distant Drums, a lot of old westerns and old war films like Fighting Squadron, and he did he did White Heat, which is a, 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 a James Cagney classic, 
Um, oh yeah, it's like yeah, an old gangster movie, wasn't it? I'm sorry, it wasn't like an old gangster movie, Whitey. Yeah, that's the one that's top, top of the world. No, that's yeah, the world. That's, no, that's, no, that's 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 another one. I forget what White Heat. White Heat is the one. White Heat was an influence on Pulp Fiction because that has the going that has the um, the smuggling plutonium. Okay, or something okay. like that. And I, it's a strange film. I haven't seen. I've only saw it once when I was in college. I was twenty years ago. I don't. I don't remember much about it. But yeah, just an amazing career. It's one of those guys that like you just don't hear about. But and it was never nominated for any major awards. But just through for just through willpower and not going away had to be an influence on um other people who you know went on to do, do bigger things. Yeah, and for I, sure. I just want to. I, I like shouting those people out. So. So behind the camera, stacked crew. In front of the camera, oddly good cast for a <laughs> a monster film. How, okay, so did you know? So you knew? I, I'm gonna guess you only knew one of these people. Yeah, I only knew one of these actors before this movie, and it was not James Whitmore. No. Okay. Um. Yeah. This this movie stars. Uh, this movie has, it has it has a weird. It's kind of an ensemble piece because. I think the movie starts with Ben, Sergeant Ben, but it ends with the FBI agent. Yeah, because you kind of think Sergeant Ben's going to be like the main guy the whole time. Yeah. And then, then once the FBI's come in, like FBI guys come in, it kind of pivots a little bit. Like there's like a little bit of like a co op thing going, then it just kind of becomes like, yeah, it just kind of gets away from like the uh, cops for like a little bit toward the end. Yeah. And that's strange because uh, Sergeant Ben is played by James Whitmore who at the time of this film was probably the biggest actor in it. He uh, was in, he was a Tony Award winner in the 40s, and he had some big roles before this. He was in Kiss Me, Kate, and in the Asphalt Jungle. Right after this, he was in Oklahoma. Uh, he is a pretty big deal from that era. He won a Golden Globe, a Grammy, an Emmy, and a, and a Tony. So he's one away from the EGOT. Um, an EGOT is a Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. Yeah, yeah. And he was in all kinds of stuff through his career. Just a, a very amazing, fascinating career. He really preferred stage work, and on stage he played Will Rogers, Harry Truman, and Theodore, Theodore Roosevelt. So that was kind of like his main wheelhouse was that. But um, and he also won. He won. He won a Grammy for a spoken word recording of one of those performances. And I think he's very good in this film. He he has a good he has good cop energy. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he I know what you mean. It's just a funny way to phrase it. <laughs> I don't know how else to phrase it. He 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 he, he looks, sells it. He sells it. He sells 1950s cop. Yeah. Yeah. And um he he he's goodness. Also, I like to point out he is one of the only he's one of the only actors who was in a role in blackface that you can watch today. <laughs> um, because he was in Black Like Me, which I, 
I have seen this not in a long time, but I have seen this movie. So that that so what what is Black Like Me? Black Like Me, if I remember correctly, was based on a book. Uh, and I, I believe I can't remember if this if this man did this in real life or not. It is. It's a nonfiction. Okay, it's about a white man who literally kind of paints himself black, tries to like live life as a black person to see what black people were going through at the time. This is like you know during like civil rights movement, like 50s, 60s, like that era. 1961. 61, yeah. And he he goes through like living the life of a black person to see what black people go through. Ends up writing about it, and then the book becomes a film. And I think that maybe we talked about the book or something in school and I ended up seeing the movie, I think on my own uh, around the time I was in high school or college, but I remember seeing this a long time ago. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I never seen the movie, <clears throat> you know, it's a, it's a, I bet that was a controversial, contra, controversial film to make in the, in the early sixties. Oh, it had to be. I'm surprised that they even got made at the time. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, well, James Whitmore was super progressive too. Like, um, he passed away, um, Okay, here's, a, here's another thing. So you know how you read about some old movies and, and they're cursed. People, yeah. people say like, "This is the opposite." Everyone in this movie lived for fucking ever. <laughs> <laughs> James Whitmore died at eighty-seven in two thousand nine. Holy shit! You know, uh, and well, like another another somebody else in this movie was born in nineteen in eighteen seventy-seven and died in nineteen fifty-nine. Um, Joan Weldon died like three years ago at ninety. Wow. James Arness made it to 2011 at 88. That is crazy. So yeah, the, the, uh, but anyway, James Whitmore he campaigned for Obama. <laughs> um, he uh, was a big proponent of keeping church and state separated. So fuck you, DeSantis. Um, just an interesting guy. Also, he was married to Mrs. Roper on Three's Company, and I, I just wanted oh. to say that. That's funny. Yeah, see, no, I remember Mrs. Roper, and that, that's just, just that we're tying his... so many decades. I just think 80s immediately when you said that. Yeah, well, that's the 70s, really. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I get that's more right. 70s. I mean, it kind of both. It overlaps, but anyway. Yeah. But he is he is protagonist A. Protagonist B is FBI agent Robert Graham, played by massive man James Arness. <laughs> The only actor I recognize in this movie initially. This is the one. So, of so course, why do you know him? Well, we mentioned earlier the thing from another planet, mm-hmm. and it was uh, the only movie I'd seen his name in at the time when I was a kid because he played the thing. He was the yeah. guy that played the thing because he's a massive man. Yeah, yeah, because he's fucking six foot seven. He's taller than me, <laughs> yeah. uh, motherfucker. Um, I think he's the first. <laughs> he's the first leading man I've covered on this podcast, taller than me. Congratulations, James on S. Um, <laughs> the piece. Um, yeah, he was six foot seven. I found so I was researching this movie in the newspaper archive, and it's very hard to find reviews of them because you just can't type in them. <laughs> yeah, not very SEO friendly. Yeah, not yeah, SEO friendly. So I was typing in them, James on S, stuff like that, and I found an interview with him right when he started Gunsmoke. So, because so my joke about this movie is this movie. This movie has every white male boomers hero in it. <laughs> Except for John Wayne. <laughs> Except for John Wayne. Well, every, okay, every white male boomers TV hero. Because we'll get to somebody else later. Because James on Ness was, was um, uh, uh, what's his name? Dylan in Gunsmoke. And Gunsmoke was oh. on for 20 goddamn years. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. And then Gunsmoke was on in TV movies in the 80s and 90s. So he played that character for nearly 50 years. 
um, which is just crazy. But when he started acting, he started acting by accident. So he was a veteran. He was in World War II. I think he was in the Army. He couldn't be in the Air Force because he was too tall. Um, <laughs> and so he finished the. He, he got back from the war. He was bored, living in Minneapolis. As you know, that's that's where you that's where you're bored. And his friend wanted to be an actor. And so James Ernest was like, "Yeah, I'm bored. Fuck it, I'll go with you." And so they hitchhiked to mini to Hollywood from Minneapolis. Uh, and James Arnaz would go with his friend on auditions just because he was bored. And they went to an audition, and an agent from RKO Pictures saw him and said, we need big guys. And James Arnaz is like, but I don't know how to act. And he says, doesn't matter, you're big. <laughs> and they needed him so much, he was able to negotiate a pretty good contract, and he got paid $400 a week for four weeks for his first movie, which for back then was a lot of money. And that was The Farmer's Daughter, which was uh, Oscar winner for Best Actress by Fulavetta Young, and a big hit. And from then, he did a few other films and, you know, had a pretty, had a decent, like, kind of B-movie career, like I said, The Thing. Yeah. You know, and a few other uh, sci-fi movies. So he's in Two Lost Worlds and a lot of Westerns. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can imagine. A- a lot of westerns. I, in 1953, he was in one, two, three, four westerns. In 52, he was in one, two, three, five westerns. So I, I'd, I'd imagine he was in all the westerns that uh, that uh, John Wayne was not in. Like just he, as the they were in the a few hero. together. Okay. Yeah, they were in. He's in Hondo. You know what? I've seen Hondo a million times, and I, I should have remembered that because that oh, was one okay. of the movies I saw when they showed it. Well. I don't know if anyone else saw this. I have a very specific memory of that movie. When they showed it in the 80s on TV in 3D. Well, Hondo? Yeah, so maybe this was just Oh, yeah, a thing it was a 3D, with, it's, a, it's a 3D movie. You're right. I didn't know that. Go ahead. Yeah, and uh, like some, some of our local grocery store chains, it was a big deal where you can go to the grocery store and get like 3D glasses, like the 1950s, you know, with the red and blue tint on oh, them. Oh, fucking Hondo. Okay, go on. And it, <laughs> I just, yeah, I just remember as a kid, it was the first time I saw a 3D movie on TV at home, mm. and I videotaped it and watched it over and over because it was cool to watch a 3D movie at home, and that's the reason why I saw that movie probably so many times when I was a kid. One of the only times I'll say anything nice about John Wayne because fuck John Wayne, um, yep. he 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 did not mind working with actors taller than him. <laughs> <So> <laughs> minorities, not so much. But uh, John Wayne sucks. I, that's why I, I, I can't watch John Wayne movies. Oh no, he sucks. Yeah, as someone who lives in Texas, <laughs> there's lots of places here. People have John Wayne all over the place, and it's just gross. I just can't. I could care less. Yeah, and it's and it's not you know if you like John, I'm not saying if you like John Wayne films, it does not not make you a bad person, obviously. Um, and if you want to separate, you can separate the actor and, and what he says. That's fine, especially because he's dead. Who cares? But me personally, I just can't do it. So yeah, that's just my personal choice. I'm not if you any if anyone here likes John Wayne movies, more power to you. Um, but fuck that dude, James Arnest rules. <laughs> yeah, fuck um, yeah, James Arnest is amazing. <laughs> His brother was Peter Graves. So wait a minute. So your brother is the guy in the Mission Impossible. Uh, you don't want to be an actor, but you join your best friend from Minneapolis to L.A. because you're bored. You get cast because you're a six foot seven man who stands out. And the first movie you end up in has like Oscar buzz. What is this? What is this life like? Yeah, they both <laughs> they both became in him and him and his brother both kind of went acting at the same time, and they were both in giant bug movies. Um, 
Peter Graves, notably, was in Beginning of the End, which is probably, of the giant bug films I've seen, the worst one. Uh, that is a Burt I. Gordon banger. If you've watched Mystery one. Science Theater, you know who Burt I. Gordon is. Uh, Burt I. Gordon is a man who had a giant fetish and turned it into a film career. Okay, yep, I've probably seen some on the MSC through Earth versus the Spider, K. War of the Colossal Beast, Amazing Colossal Man, Attack of the yeah. People. He also did, um, I think he did the, the, the TV shows. I don't know about that, but Fruit of the Gods, Empire of the Ants, um, with Joan Collins, not Joan Crawford, and just all kinds of big things. Movies. Almost everything he made was terrible. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about those a little bit later. But yeah, so two, Peter Graves, not as tall as James Arness. Um, probably a bit. I don't know who's the better actor there. They're both not great actors. They both don't have a ton of range. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I mean, enough to have have each had careers though. So doing one thing. <laughs> but hey, true, true. But hey, more, more than me. Fuck it. Really, really good at the one thing that they do. Really good at the one thing they do. And the mo- this movie is really about them and two more people. The doctors, Medford. Uh the old doctor is Dr. Harold Medford. He's played by Edmund Gwen, who, if you know who that is, he was the he was Santa Claus in um, Miracle on 34th Street. He won an Oscar for it. Oh, uh, yeah. Classic. Christmas and classic. this is one of his last roles. Apparently, I, I found an interview with Joan Weldon, who's in this movie, and she said that he was so sick he could barely walk. And oh, wow. you actually see that a few times in the movie. Like when he when he bends down to look at something, he needs help getting up. Uh, he had terrible arthritis. And um, he, he, he is joined by an actress playing his daughter, the other Dr. Medford, Joan Weldon, who's barely in anything. She was an only an actor from like 53 to like 58. And then she went into, I believe... Uh, no, yes, he went into stage productions and retired in 80, passed away two years ago at like 90 years old. Um, she's pretty. She's very 1950s um, 1950s starlet. Yeah, she really is. Yeah. Um, and I think she's, you know, her role doesn't require her to do that much other than be pretty and be a scientist. But she's a pretty scientist. <laughs> I, re- I really like both of them, but it's a, it's a shame how, how misogynistic the movie is toward her character. Uh, well, like, I feel like the movie is kind of... James Arnett's character is misogynistic, and she won't let him be. That's and true. That's yeah. how you had a romance in the 1950s. And 50s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen, lady, you got to stay home while I do the work. Well, really? I'm not going to, but I love you. <laughs> you know. And then she kind of, at the end, ends up kind of seeming to fall for him a little bit. Yeah, yeah. They, they become a couple, for sure. For sure. Yeah. That is, a, that is a very, that is a trope in this movie is... And in this genre is the the ex one of the experts is a woman, and the hero falls in love with her. Yeah, uh, the same thing happens in another movie we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, but yeah, she's fine. And then the only other people worth mentioning, really, I just because they're interesting. Um, there's a little girl in this movie, uh, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. She's played by an actress named Sandy De- Sandy Deschner. Desher. She's the last surviving cast member. She's still alive. Um, she's probably in her 70s. <laughs> yeah, so she's um, got to be up there. Yeah, and she was a child actress. She was in TV and film to the 60s, 
and then she quit acting and managed a chain of Hawaiian fashion stores called Michael's. That is very specific. Very specific. It's not the craft store, Michael's. I don't think so. Um, and then one more person, really quick, blink and you'll miss him. There's a scene in this movie with an actor named Fess Parker. Now, did, did, you, did you know who he was? No, it doesn't sound familiar. Yeah, he would, yeah we're, we're too young. He is the other hero for white boomer men who were born in the, in the 40s. <laughs> he was, <laughs> and I'm sorry to say white too, but it's just like, it's very... He's Davy Crockett. I mean, it's accurate. <laughs> it's accurate. Yeah, I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to overgeneralize. You know, um, but like, my dad loved Davy Crockett, um, and it's a great story about this movie. So, Fess Parker has a, plays a very smart character. He has one scene. It required only one day of work, and that day he when he was filming. Walt Disney was there. Because somebody told Walt Disney that James Arness would be good for Davy Crockett because they were going to make a Davy Crockett TV show. Right. And so Walt Disney shows up, likes James Arness, but loves uh, Fess Parker. They hit it off. They become, they, they get a good rapport. He thinks he'd be perfect for the role. He hires him for Davy Crockett, which is one of the most popular TV shows of the 50s. And I remember the theme songs. I remember for, for some reason in the 80s, a lot of like 50s, 60s movies played on like our local like ABC affiliates or whatever. And I remember seeing that TV show as a kid in the 80s and hearing that theme song. It's the only thing I remember about that show. King of the Wild Frontier. King of the Wild Frontier. Oh, uh, I remember. My, I've, I have, I'm not a Davy Crockett person. Davy Crockett was an interesting guy as a human. Um, but my, here's my, here's my now to Davy Crockett. I might have told this story before. It's just funny to tell. I was talking about the Alamo. I forgot why. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I know why. I have, there's a song I like by this band called Babe Ruth, and they have a song called The Mexican, and it's about the Alamo. And my boyfriend didn't know what the Alamo was, and I was like, and because he's a Japanese man, so why the fuck would he? Uh, right. And so it's not like you; it's the opposite of you, I imagine. Um, Texas. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I live in Texas, where, where we assume everyone knows what the Alamo is. From what I have, from what I hear, you have to remember it. But anyway. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, no, that's what Davy Crockett died. And then my boyfriend said, oh, no, I made his cookies. What? No, no, no. That's Betty Crocker. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's really good. That's that's a real that's a real specific. You got to be to not. Oh, I love I love that. I love that. Yeah. So anyway, David Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. Uh, <laughs> did you see Leonard Nimoy? So this is weird. I saw him and didn't realize that I had seen him until afterwards. Um, when I started looking at stuff about the movie, and someone mentioned Leonard Nimoy uncredited, and I was like, "Wait, what?" And I went back on YouTube, pulled up the scene, and do you know I sat there watching this movie, James, going, "Oh, they're making fun of Texas." That makes me laugh when people make fun of Texas movies, not realizing. Leonard Nimoy was the guy making the jokes about Texas. <laughs> I totally watched the scene completely. Like, what was the joke? I forgot the joke. So whenever, because whenever I see that scene, I always, I was like, "Holy fuck, it's Leonard Nimoy!" And I'm not it paying was, attention. It was, it was like a tele. It was like a telegraph comes through. He's like in a, in an office, and he pulls a telegraph, and they, you know, they show on on the screen something about. I think it's. I think it was when they before they went to uh, talk to the guy in Texas in Brownsville that had he had flown a plane that he saw some of the ants flying, whatever. 
and mm-hmm. reported as like a UFO, or whatever. So the telegraph comes through, and Leonard Nimoy is like, "Oh, Texas! They always think everything's bigger, or you know, some joke about everything being bigger in Texas." And you know, kind of like all oh, those Texas are so ridiculous. And I'm sitting there laughing at it as a Texan, and <laughs> the whole time I'm thinking, James, I've been also watching a lot of like original Star Trek lately, so this is really like I'm going, man, that guy looks familiar, but he's so much younger. That he looks on Star Trek. I didn't even put it together that it was Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, I'm trying to see how old he was here. He was. He's not even maybe, thirty years old. Was this maybe like ten years before Star Trek? Maybe eight, nine yeah, years. Probably, yeah. So he's like, yeah. Um, he is. He like, looks so young. He's like 23, 24. Yeah, I, I didn't even recognize him. Yeah, I, I wonder. If, I wonder. It might be. Let me see if that's his first role. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look really quick. No, it's not his first role. Uh. He was in some stuff stuff in, in 1951. So he had a very he – started, he started early. God, he started when he was 20 years old. I didn't know that. Um, it was almost subtle enough where if you're not, like, looking, you just won't know it's him. Yeah. And, yeah, another person who lived a fucking ever. He was 83 when he passed away. So yeah. the, the key to a long life in 1955 was being them. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> It is it is it is ridiculous how many people like I just click, click like like the partner who dies early he lived to be eighty two. Yeah, there was something on that set, something at at Kraft's service table that was just keeping everybody <laughs> going. It's the opposite <laughs> of that John Wayne movie where everyone died. Yeah, you know that movie, The Conqueror. Yeah, yeah. The, what the one where they filmed it downwind of a nuclear testing, and everyone had something terrible happen. To, yeah, everyone got cancer. Of course, everyone then was also smoking and drinking a ton. So I think the combination of all three. Um, that's true. If you're drinking whiskey f- straight every day, then wa- washing it down with nuclear water, that's not going to be good <laughs> for your, your disposition. few quick things about the production this was supposed to be filmed in 3d and in color unfortunately it was not um that would have been rad when the when the titles hit for some reason my first thought was was this a 3d movie because something about the titles looked like it was well the, t- the titles are in color well i mean but something about it just felt like this would have been projected like coming out at you or something but yeah yeah and a lot of the shots were still filmed that way like the the storyboarding like the flame flowers are pointing towards the screen a lot of yeah. stuff like that, you know, um, got 3D aesthetic to it. But no, uh, filmed and, and in like filmed the, in black. The ants, oh, like sorry, the ants come toward the, the ants come toward the camera a lot too. Yeah, the ants are cool looking, man. Those the ants, like I said, they only made two of them, and only one was fully mechanical. It was twelve feet, and it required like a full team of men to move it, kind of like the Queen Alien and Aliens. Um, oh, I can imagine. The other one was like over three quarters, but it couldn't move like the first one. Um, and they had smaller non-mechanical acts for ants for the very, very end, and you can see them like in the last shot. And um, they can't move; they just have wind machines on them to make them like fidget, uh, and twitch a lot. And that's how they did that effect. And the sound effect, which is really cool, the sound of the ants. Which maybe I'll put in here. So sorry for your eardrums, everybody. Yeah. 
the sound effect is like a combination of like sped up and distorted bird sounds, frogs, whistles, all like kinds like a, of weird like a ch- chirping, like a chirping. Hissing. Yeah, woodpeckers, like all mixed together and played at different sound, different speeds. Uh, so the sound guy must have had a lot of fun. The sound guy also had a lot of fun <laughs> because how many times is the Wilhelm scream in this fucking movie? <laughs> I thought I heard it three or four times because yeah. there were one or two times that I feel like two people back to back did it. Yeah, there was one scene, I think, at the very end, you, there, it is back to back. Yeah. And it, you hear it also in the ship. Um, um, there was one, I think, when one of the guys, when they're in the um, underneath LA in the tunnels at the very end, and he's uh, like a part of the structure falls on his head. Yes, and that's, yes. He, yeah, he puts his hand up and he does it, and it's so caught me off guard. I must have laughed for five minutes just on that one. Yeah, it is one of the first films after Distant Drums with somebody who worked on this worked on that. I forgot who. Uh, somebody. Oh yeah, Cindy, the cinematographer of this also worked on Distant Drums. Distant Drums is the movie with Wilhelm Scream, the first one. Oh, okay, yes. that makes sense then. Because the, also the Wilhelm Scream is. In case someone doesn't know this, you've heard it. The Wilhelm Scream is a famous like stock scream used in movies, and it's by Sheb Rulli. Sheb Rulli sang Purple People Leader. Oh, okay. That's him screaming. And it was used only in one of films for a long time, and this might be the, the third one after Distant Drums, Star is Born, and then maybe this. I feel like, wasn't it? very recently that they found the full recording like you can hear people giving him directions to, to on the takes on on that yeah it's really recording. awesome yeah yeah i might i'll put that in here too yeah there's the whole you can hear you can hear the formation of the scream and then the guy because he's, he's trying it and it's like no scream in pain it's like ah! a man getting bit by an alligator and he screams okay The first one you did up here was much better. Oh! No, no, not, not an owl. A real scream of pain. Oh! 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 Yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's something you've heard like in Star Wars. You've heard it several times. You'll you'll know when you when you when you hear it. So yeah, yeah, it's 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 a gooder. But anyway, um. Let's talk about the movie. So, if you haven't seen them, watch them. Because we're going to spoil them. Highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. It's, it's way better than you think it is. Yeah. And I think it, one reason it's so good is because it starts so moody. Like, it's, it's kind of, the very beginning is eerie. Which I didn't expect at all. Yeah, so because with, with the little girl. So what's yeah. happening in Which, the beginning? Uh very beginning um it's like first of all i'll say this little girl did a really good job of being creepy <laughs> creeping <laughs> yeah, me out yeah, yeah. Um, i'm expecting a super b movie that's going to be silly and campy and there's uh uh these two uh these two cops i'm trying to remember now because I, I feel like there's so many different things that happen uh well, there's, there's helicopters feel- there's helicopters in the desert and because somebody called in saying they saw a kid Right, they saw a kid and this this little girl. She's maybe like eight years old. She's wandering around in the desert by herself, and the two cops see her. They find her. They go to get her. She doesn't speak. She doesn't really acknowledge them. It's like she's in a trance. She doesn't do anything. 
Um, they, they pick her up. She doesn't make a sound, didn't make a noise, didn't make a gesture, nothing. And it's almost like she's kind of like just on autopilot. And they say she's in shock. They can't find her parents or anyone around, but they found like, I think it was like the remains of like a, a car or something a little bit down the road. Trailer. Trailer, yeah. Car on a trailer. And, yeah, car on a trailer. And the trailer has this just hole in the side of it that they, as they they go to investigate, they notice it's like it was ripped from the outside, like something was trying to get into it, like slashed apart. Yeah. Um, and it's like they don't know what's going on at this point. Uh, the movie starts off so already serious, like we don't know what's happening, but something clearly attacked this thing and killed it, and it traumatizes the little girl so bad where she won't even make a sound. And um, then they figure out that she is the daughter of an FBI agent, and yeah. they say it. They 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 they, they, they say it that that agent had two kids. So yeah. one of them's dead. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so this film has off-camera child death, which is pretty rare for a 1950s movie. Um, yeah. Yeah. And early on, when they go there at the trailer, they notice that there's sugar all over the floor. Yeah, there's sugar everywhere. And there, that um, there's a weird, kind of a weird smell. And then when they're, when they're putting the girl in the ambulance, is that you hear the ants. They don't know that. that You hear a noise. And yeah. that's one of my favorite shots because they hear the noise and they look up. And when they look up, the girl looks up, but they don't see her look up. And, and do yeah, we see we, we see do we see them at that point? Because I feel like we don't they see, no, we earlier. don't see them until later. We don't see them until later. Okay. We only hear them. Uh because then they have to go to Gramps' place. Remember? That's right. The next yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the general store, the, the local general store is also all fucked up. Yeah. Uh that guy, I mean, there's like kind of like a hole in the general store where the guy's body is. And again, I think in that place also like the sugar was spilled all over the place in that store too. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're noticing this pattern, like there's sugar everywhere. Like the building is also destroyed in a similar way where like something attacked from the outside, ripping the building apart to get into it. Yeah. And they see the guy's dead body in a hole in the floor and they have no idea what's going on. And I, I feel like they see, I don't know if they see maybe like kind of footprints or something like footprints they in the area, but they don't know what it at is. The, at the campsite, the first one, where they yeah. see a weird print. They don't know what it is. Yeah. Because no one's ever seen the giant ant print before. No, no. So they take they they take a cast of the footprint. They they ship that off to like FBI or something, or the federal government or someplace to get that looked at while they look at this. And when they're at the, Gramps's place, was also a really cool thing. It's all at night, and so it's windy yeah. and everything's moving around. And uh, Bob is there with his partner Ed, and Bob goes. Ed stays behind. <laughs> R.I.P. Ed. <laughs> Because I'm sure it's totally safe. <laughs> totally safe, yeah. And uh, he hears a noise. He comes out. You hear gunshots. Ed's dead, baby. Ed's dead. And yep. this is when... So the, so the first victim was an FBI agent, uh, his family. So the FBI come in. And that's when we meet James Arness as giant FBI agent Graham. <laughs> the largest <laughs> man in the service. He's just... <laughs> he's just such a massive... Dude. Okay, so like I live... I'm a, I'm a big guy. And I live in Japan, and I just feel like he, I. It look. It must look like how I look like here. <laughs> just so this towering the 50s, over everyone. People are shorter. Yeah. And like he's with like the old when the especially when the scientists and the, when the scientists still up because that that dude is tiny, like the old man is tiny, and Joan Weldon's a short woman also. 
So yeah. when he's around them, he's like he's the third. He's like he can just fight these ants hand to hand. So bits of the ants. The ants are only the only thing taller in the movie than him. Like yeah. <laughs> He's so, the only person that could probably look one of the ants in the eye. Like, I want to so know who his big. tailor was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they're investigating it, and they, they're told very quickly that people from the Department of Agriculture are coming. And so I don't understand what I don't understand is how the people, how these ant experts were alerted still. I don't get that. Like I don't get that either, because they 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 made the very specific call of Department of Agriculture. Also, it, they had a word for them where it's like ant specialists. Like, uh, oh god, myrmecologists. Myrmecologists study ants. Yeah, I and, saw it in the subtitles. I couldn't remember the, the yeah. term. Yeah, I know this because if you go to the myrmecologists and if you go to the myrmecology Wikipedia page, <laughs> there is a myrmecologist in fiction section, and it has two entries. This has to be one of them, of course. Them and Ant, and them and and uh, uh, Doctor Hank Pym, oh, Ant Man. That makes sense. That makes sense. That makes, those, that, those are the those are the only ones. Um, the other large ant, the other the other ant, the, the other <laughs> fictional ant expert. But I imagine because they sent the print to the Department of Agriculture, and also the bodies have had formic acid in them, mm-hmm. which is what is in ants. So somebody at the Department of Agriculture must have saw the print, heard about the formic acid, and said, oh, I guess it must be those giant ants. <laughs> Which, by the way, this movie goes out of its way at least two or three times to, almost in a documentary kind of style, tell you a lot of facts about ants. Like, there's even a whole scene, I feel like, where the doctor is giving like, the military guys like a briefing. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. almost like it's like a it could be a five minute scene of like a fifties like science class of like this type of ant does this and he's telling them all these specific traits about different kind of ants to the point where I was like man they're really making sure we know like ant behavior and all this stuff and I guess in the story is to like let them know how bad it could be if the ants spread out and everything but it's very much like they're very scientific on like we've researched the hell out of this subject yeah they want you to know they had an ant expert for this movie. Yeah, because like the thing about the acid, the uh, formic acid, is like what they finally use. They like I think the doctor has uh, mm. the formic acid, and he introduces that kind of waves it around the girl's nostrils so she gets a whiff of it, and it's the first time she breaks like her her kind of like shock, and she just starts shouting them like it's the first time she does. Yeah, anything, yeah, which is and a really cool scene. That's an iconic scene uh, yeah. for the film, and in my in my mind. Like when I when when I was thinking about the movie, that scene happened much earlier. Like in in, in from watching it as a kid, that's the first thing I remember is yeah. her just yelling them. Uh, before that, though, when we meet the scientists, you were talking about 1950s misogyny, mm-hmm. and so the scientists land on a plane. The old man gets out, and then he's like, "Well, it said doctors. Where's the other one?" And then you hear her say, "Oh, my leg is stuck," and it cuts over. And she can't get out of the plane because her dress got stuck on the ladder and it's sewing her leg. And, you know, the I think like the FBI agent and the cop, they're doing their best to not help her out, but just stare at her ass. <laughs> She's coming down the steps. It's all yeah. they're doing. It's just looking at her butt. And um, when she finally gets off the plane, one of them makes a comment like, uh, you know, something like if she's a doctor, I'm gonna make sure I get sick and get treated by her or something. Yeah. You know, they, 
And then the cop kind of chuckles with him. And I'm like, oh, here we go. 1950s movie. <laughs> You're a doctor of my dick. No, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's the vibe that they're putting kinda, out. Really, you know? It is gross. It's gross. It's, I mean, it's, it's a just 50s. right there on the screen. Yeah. It's right there. It's like, I'm a, yeah, <laughs> I have other jokes I won't say. Anyway. So after the, the girl screams them, they're like, let's go back to the campsite. And that's when you finally see the ants. And they do a good job here because they're smart. They real so the ants look great, but they still are giant puppets. Yeah. So they show them in a sandstorm. And that it's like how in Jurassic Park it's raining. Oh yeah. Even a lot of movies today, even still, like when there's special effects, like and there's giant fights, sometimes we're gonna put stuff in the rain to like hide a bit of the effects, you know? Yeah, it worked and it works well here. Cause like I said before, the ants look fucking dope. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Those fucking giant mandibles. Um, also, if anybody hasn't, if, if you're listening to this, go look up the poster for them because the poster's amazing. Uh, the poster is pretty great. Like, the poster's pretty it's, great. It's a, a, a woman being grabbed. If the, I wish we had that movie. Uh, like, because this movie's great, but the poster, the, the movie that the movie the poster's advertising is even better. Uh, but they they um they see a giant ant. They start shooting at it with pistols because that's gonna work. Um, I want to know why Sergeant Bob has a goddamn Uzi in his trunk. Yeah, like what? Oh, Ben, talk to Ben, talk to Ben. Yeah, what, what part of your patrol requires you to keep this in the car? Like, why was this a thing he had? I don't want to. It's, it's the fifties, and it's a white cop. I don't want to know. No, anyway. <laughs> True. They keep out uh, the Mexicans. Um, <laughs> I think I think they just start shooting, and it's like I think the I think the doctor tells him shoot at the mandibles. Yes, I was surprised. I knew what that word was. Oh, the the antennae, the antennae, the antennae. Not the oh, antennae. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's the right. Mandibles are the bitey thingies. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 So they, they when they, when they shoot the antennae, he's blind, and they can kill it easily. Uh, yeah. But then they're like, "Well, oh fuck, we got giant ants!" And immediately the doctor's like, "Well, you know what did this, right?" Yeah. Yeah, because oh, that's right. Because this takes place in well, this at least this starts in New Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Not, not Texas. I'm sorry. Yeah, or th- this first like nest that they find yeah. is in New Mexico, and of course, it's funny because the whole time I'm thinking like while I'm watching this, I'm like New Mexico, like like there was like atomic bomb, like you know stuff. Yep, the first one. And I'm thinking that, and then of course they address that, like yes, well, this is X amount of miles away from where they tested the first atomic bomb, and. So that's when I started making that Godzilla connection in, in my mind of, oh, this is like an American Godzilla, you know, that we're dealing with now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that, that was pretty much it. We covered that earlier, though. Because <laughs> this and Godzilla came out the same year. That's uh, right. Yeah. But Godzilla did not come into America as Godzilla King of the Monsters until 56. So uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm trying to see which one came out first first. So. Godzilla came out in October 27th, 1954 in Japan. This came out in June. So this beats it just by a few months. And I don't know if them is the first nuclear monster film. It's the first nuclear bug monster film. (laughs) I know that. Uh, I I imagine it has to be the first nuclear monster film. Well, it feels like, I mean, this is like, let's see, like nine years after the first atomic bomb. Yeah. Um, but I'm almost surprised it would take that long for someone to have made one. But like the fact that they both had that same year, that parallel thinking lined up at the right time where, you know, kind of like you see in media, like other things, like other events happen. You see TV shows, movies affected by that. But it's kind of, 
I guess not that surprising that both uh, Japan and, and U.S. would have that similar idea for a movie uh, around that same time period. Well, you know, giant monster films is before this, obviously, King Kong. Yeah. You know, and that's 1933. That's like the, the real first one is The Lost World in the 20s, but the first real one is King Kong. And, oh, yeah. yeah. But once the war starts, there are not many giant monster films because we have real problems. And yeah. then after the war is over, there are two types of giant monster films. There are the Jules Verne style, you know, Germany to the beginning of time, you know, lost continent movies. And yeah, there are movies. there are these monsters are caused by radiation movies. Yeah. And this is very film school 101, but it is very much I a lot of people just think, you know, people were terrified of radiation. People were terrified of, of atomic war, nuclear war. And this was a relatively safe way to show those fears. Yeah. You know. Now, what I what I thought was really weird about the decision after this first Anatex, because of course after they, they shoot him in all this, then they start going through like, you know, the, the scientists start talking about, you know, the way ants build their colonies and things and how we're gonna have to like, you know, seal this off and like uh what did they use? They use like they had flamethrowers and like bazookas, I think. They use flamethrowers and cyanide mostly. Cyanide, yeah. They bomb it with cyanide. Yeah. They bomb it with cyanide and everything, but they're like, okay, you know, we took care of this one or whatever. But then there's like almost this odd decision of like they decide not to widely spread this. It's like we're not sure if another if one of the queens or whatever escaped from this, but we're also going to kind of keep this on a need to know basis. Which I'd be like, I'm not saying get on the news and broadcast, but maybe we like put an alert out a little bit sooner here to kind of get this under control because we just saw like I don't know twelve foot like eight foot ants. I think kind of the idea was, is they don't want to have a panic. Yeah. I would say you don't want to have people thinking you're all fucking crazy. <laughs> well, that too. But I almost feel like even when you see the first one or two, I almost feel like even you should get more people there to go in into the holes with you to investigate. Because once you got like one dead one, be like, look, we found one of these. We think there might be more. Like, and, yeah, and, well, that, and there's a scene where the ant is carrying a rib cage and it drops it on a big pile of bones. <laughs> Yeah, these ants. There's only a few missing people officially, but these ants have been eating people for a while. Yeah, and it's it's happened for a while, and you don't know how many you're dealing with now. Yeah, but I uh, I do like the scene where they go in the nest. I think that's cool. Yeah, Uh, and they 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 blast those ants with the flamethrower, and that's where they find that the queen the the queen had laid eggs with queens, and those those have already escaped. Yeah, because queen ants can fly. Yeah, that's and terrifying because now they can fly and they're huge. <laughs> now they can fly and they're huge. <laughs> just like, ah. uh, and that's when they really lay it on the line. It's like, look, if we don't kill, if we don't find these queens before they make newer nests, this problem is going to grow exponentially and they will wipe out all of mankind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Kind of a big deal. Kind of high stakes. Kind of high stakes. Yeah. And that's when the film, I think... It's interesting because now it kind of becomes a detective movie. Yeah, it's almost like they're waiting to see like activity so they can kind of find like they don't really have a good way of finding the ants, especially if the queens have escaped. So it's almost like we just have to wait to see what lights up on the map and where like someone reports something. So they have like this um kind of like a committee they set up where it's like yeah. the people 
or waiting almost for strange reports of like UFO and strange like things that people would consider crazy and unusual that they're going to investigate because, of course, they know it's going to be a, a legitimate thing. But anything that might set up a red flag to anyone else that would think, well, that's impossible. Yeah, um, they keep almost a, like, they, a, like a weird X Files kind of, you know? They keep they they have a like a shirts out for like um bizarre missing persons cases. Yep. Um, of course, science of giant fucking ants, and also missing sugar. Yeah, yeah. And because that's how they find that's how they first get an idea. Um, there's a so this so one of the queens <laughs> ends up on a boat. This kind of strange. Yeah. Um, and so you get like a very brief like 10 second scene of these soldiers fighting ants on a boat you hear the Wilhelm scream and then you find out that that boat has been destroyed yeah like they uh, I think they sunk they sunk that boat so nothing would happen or so that it wouldn't spread further Yeah, but I yeah. think the navy ship they sent to sink that one they also kind of left them at sea like because yes. now those people are aware of it too and they don't want them to spread information Yes, but yes. My favorite part of that scene is that the one guy who is just tapping away on the SOS Telegraph, and you see yeah. the and you see the ants behind him just attacking everyone, but he's dedicated on like I gotta get this message out, tapping away, and the answer like it's kind of an amazing, insane scene. They're behind him eating everyone and attacking, then they finally come for him, but he's tapping a message to get it out. Like that man is dedicated to his job. SOS send help about to be attacked by giant ants ants, and I wonder if he telegraphed. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't so know that I have so, the composure he had to get my job done in that moment. Yes. So one thing about this whole sequence. So here's the thing about giant monster movies. Giant monsters are expensive. So you can't show it too much. So I feel like the second act of this film, you barely see the ant. I feel like they put that scene in the film just to give you a taste of ants. Yeah. Because it's very, it's slow, not not boring, but it slows down because it, it becomes a detective drama. Yeah. And the detectiving leads them to L.A. because the sugar, the sugar is missing. Also find a, a mangled corpse in the L.A. River uh, near a hospital. They go... Um, the drunk, they, they go to the drunk tank in the hospital, and this guy's like, "I see these bugs. I'm a comedic drunk." <laughs> the same guy who's like, "I'll enlist if you put me in charge of the alcohol." And he says I'll it like four times. <laughs> so give me the booze. I'm enlist. Give me the. Booze. I've been that guy. Yeah, yeah. He starts um, singing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's not like a fun drunk. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, he's, yeah. he's not like he's not. You know, he's he just wants to have a good time. He wants he, to have a he good time. There's something with all the guys here like, we don't want to enlist. But he's the one guy's like, I'll enlist if you put me in charge of the booze. I'll enlist in charge of the booze. He has a great little song. Yeah. And they go to investigate the river. They find a toy plane. So, because the person who was mangled, he was with his kids. The wife is like, that's his my kid's toy plane. So then they know the ants and possibly the kids are in the, are in the channel, drainage channels of the L.A. River. And yeah. That's when they finally go public with it. They declare martial law in Los Angeles, which I'm sure we'll go over great today. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And they go on the ant hunt. And Also, before that, we had like a scene where like the media was freaking out. And they've always been asking everyone, like, what's all these meetings? What's going on? Like, why aren't you telling us what's going on? Like, you have all these different heads of like, you know, different organizations like meeting here. But no one's telling us what's happening. 
And I feel like if that happened today, there's no way that some some person doesn't let something slip on social media or something not, about what's going on. And not only that, the media the, the media is portrayed in this is very willing of just like, what are you going to tell us? Nothing. Well, okay. I guess we'll just wait. <laughs> we'll just wait. We'll just wait. It's very, it's very, I think, very much still a war mentality of the media. Like, yeah. you know, the government's on our side. Don't, you know, loose lips sink sips. Sips. Sink ships, you know. Even but even when they do the broadcast, um, they broadcast to everyone in you know it's like from the cooperation of the president and the mayor of Los Angeles and the governor of California, and then they just very just nonchalantly you know giant ants. <laughs> like <laughs> once they say it, there's not a shot of a single person going, "What the hell?" Like everyone's very sternly like, "Oh wow, this sounds dangerous," but no one's like. Did he just say giant ants are underneath a, the city? There's a very similar scene in a very bad film called Eight Legged Freaks. Uh, yeah. With David Arquette and Scarlett Johansson. Um, <laughs> Forgot funny. about that movie. Yeah. And where the sheriff goes on, the sheriff who's played by Owen Wilson's girlfriend in Anaconda who dies quick, um, gets on the radio to tell everyone about giant spiders and everyone's like, Fucking what? <laughs> and that's the, probably the only good scene in that movie. In this one, everyone just kind of goes along with it. I feel like if I'm gonna, if I'm the government, and I'm like, okay, time to bring out this news of giant ants. I'm gonna make the statement in front of a dead giant ant. Yeah, show us what we're dealing with. So I don't sound like I'm making something up to cover so I don't, something else. So it doesn't else. sound like Joe Biden got <laughs> drunk and got a camera. Because <laughs> just imagine, imagine if Joe Biden made that announcement. He'd be on Fox News. Ah, oh, crazy Joe. <laughs> Dementia Joe again. Oh, he's talking about ants. You know. But but you know what? Strangely, the fact that everyone, they sell that scene as is very serious. And the fact that everyone reacts to it like it's a very serious thing. Like as if you were given like a hurricane warning or something. You know, it's like they like play this very like, oh, we better stay inside. I think that also helps this movie. To where it does feel more like, no, we're taking all this seriously. We're not playing it like it's for camp. And that kind of does fit the tone of the movie. Because I think I think if this was like another more ridiculous movie, they would all just be like, what What are you talking about? There's no giant ants. Then maybe it's like a giant ant climb over a building or something crazy. Like maybe the, like the way the poster sells, we'd see that kind of movie. But they very much take this message very straightforward. Like, Guess we better stay inside. This sounds like a, a very dangerous thing going on. Well, I mean, they, they, yeah, they play it dead serious um, the whole time, and and there's no comic relief even. Like you get some of the later ones, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, and they, those have more comedic elements, and then they're also very p- parts of them lead to a cheese factor. There's nothing really cheesy here. There's nothing other than the ant special effects. Nothing about the movie has aged poorly. Yeah. And even the ants still look pretty good considering the when it was made. So there's not much to laugh at. Uh except maybe the misogyny. <laughs> well, I, I think some of the some of the funniest actual parts are the um the scientists. And I think there was a part where he's like in the helicopter with the cops oh, and the FBI agent. That's a great scene. That, that little exchange about you gotta say over out and all the little dialogue stuff and uh, there's a lot of times where the scientist is talking to someone else, and if he's not talking about science things, it's just a regular like interaction like with a human. He feels very out of place where he's like, this is not science, so I do not know how to deal with this. Yeah, and those like, are very funny moments. You have to say over and out, over and out. Are you happy now? 
Um, <laughs> yeah, very funny. So they go to the canals of the Ellie River because they're still looking for these two kids mm-hmm. who might be alive. I don't know why. Like that's also that's kind of a contrivance. Those those kids should be dead. Uh, yeah. But it's the fifties, and you already killed one kid off camera. You can't kill two more. Um, uh, Sergeant Ed finds the kids surrounded by no Sergeant, Sergeant Ben. Sergeant Ben finds the ants. Kids surrounded by ants. He rescues the kids, but then yo Ben is fucking murked. <laughs> okay, Ben gets murked in the way that the movie poster suggests everyone's going to get murked. It's yeah, up gets- close, and it sucks. And I like I do. You don't get a lot of movies with the, the the person who's killed last words are literally goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> the minute he takes off the flamethrower, I was like, "Well, he's gone," but not because he didn't have a weapon, but because he was leaving himself open in general. Like, even if the thing grabbed him, maybe he could have shrugged off the you know backpack and it would have taken the, the pack off of him. But the minute he took that off, I was like, "Well, that's kind of the only armor he had. He's about to die." Yeah, and then yeah, he says he, but he rescues the kids. Yeah, he got the he kids the, out. He gets the kids out. So now those kids are going to have survivor guilt for the rest of their lives. And <laughs> um, and imagine being imagine that being a trauma. You have to go to therapy because of giant ants. Oh, you're never playing outside the rest of your life. It's never over. playing outside the rest of your life. Sugo terrifies you. You can never have, you can never you can never have a picnic. You can never have a picnic. No, there's no way. No way. So uh, at that point, then uh, our, our kind of sort of leading man A is gone. It is now a Robert Arnest pixel for the last ten minutes. Um, there's a cave in. He gets trapped. He just goes hog wild on those fucking ants. Like, oh yeah, Mil- military shows up. It's a full on shootout with the ants now. With the ants, they find the queens. They haven't escaped yet. They kind of stare them down for a minute, and then they get. And then they fucking flame those fuckers. And uh, but it's not a happy ending because someone's like, "Well, if these are from the first atomic bomb, what does that mean?" <laughs> now. This, I feel like this is a symbol of like, you know, these classic monster movies, like they always, I mean, it's like, you know, we've had, of course, the whole thing being that this is from the atomic bomb, you've kind of got that underlying, you know, implied thing of this is something we've created, you know, this is a problem that we have to deal with. But it's almost like if you weren't paying attention, we're going to hit you with the literal, like, this is what we're talking about now. Um, And the only other thing that's reminded me of at the time was uh, the day the earth stood still. I've never seen that. Where it's a good movie. I know and I that. Won't ruin yeah. it, but there is a, a line that the alien says. I want to say maybe the last line or very nearly end of the movie, where it's like, "This is kind of what this movie was about," and it's like about the way people, you know, humanity treat each other and stuff. Yeah, and I, I, I know that much. Yeah, seeing, yeah, I remember seeing that as a kid, where it was like that stuck with me the rest of my life. Like, holy shit! Like, what an amazing thing. And this movie, once that line hit, I was actually shocked that that was the end of the movie. It just seemed like. Bam, it ends abruptly. And I, I don't know why I thought there might be more after that, but it just kind of was like, hey, uh, audience, think about this. And then, boom, it's like credits. Like, it's just done after that. Because it is very almost speaking to the audience. And it's even, it's on a Wikipedia page. The doctor says, when man entered the atomic age, he opened the door to a new world. What we may eventually find in that new world, nobody can predict. Credit. No, the end. Yeah. It's almost and instant. There's like no hesitation. I feel like that is very much a direct representation of people's fears of the Cold War and yeah. nuclear prolif- n- nuclear weapons and all that stuff. And it is it is wearing it on its sleeve. 
and what you know i feel like this movie it's funny it ends with a downbeat but like obviously kids at the time fucking loved it <laughs> oh and yeah a lot of that was lost on some of the audience but i i think maybe a more mature audience picked up on it as well uh this movie did quite well when it came out it it made a few million dollars it's hard to get exact box office back then and it reviewed well i want to read two reviews really quick um okay. kind, of, kind of funny jay Komadi of the washington dc evening star of the pronoun titled films it she and i the jury them is the mo- one most likely to be the least forgettable <laughs> <laughs> and gilbert kenner of the baltimore evening sun not evening star said addicts of pseudoscience in the cinema and it is conceivable others as well likely will find them reasonably interesting malarkey because it of the joe biden write this malarkey, malarkey because it avoids the gosh excesses which identify its films of its type and the moon calf capers which pass for romance i don't know what moon calf is that's a good word i was gonna say that sounds like a 50s word i've never heard that before yeah i'm let's let me let me, let me google moon calf um moon calf capers foolish. i mean also foolish. the same foolish. foolish capers okay yes so it, it got it reviewed well and it did well and it obviously was a massive influence in pop culture because immediately after this you get eight million other giant bug movies now how many of them have you seen mr science uh, accounts see I would have to look up the MST3K ones because I probably don't remember the names of all of them. I'll tell you the MST3K um, ones. So okay. MST3K did the Black Scorpion. That was the first one to use stop motion. Um, I think the most famous one on Mystery Science Theater is the beginning of the end. That's one of the giant locusts. Yep, and, I've definitely seen that one. And that is on postcards. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, those are that's a that's a bird eye Gordon one. Then there's the giant. The, the, the Deadly Mantis, that stars the actor who played Peter Gunn. Um, that was on Mystery Science Theater. That's a bad one. Then there was Earth versus the Spider. That is that um, one I have seen. Yeah, that's I think that might be the most famous one outside of them. That is writ- also co-written by George Worthing Yates. And uh it's a bad movie too. I believe that. Um, yes, Earth versus the Spider is one of the first movies made directed made for teenagers. The stars of the films are teenagers. Well, they're actually in their twenties, but you know what I mean. Oh, um, okay, okay. It's one of the very first that Bert I. Gordon was one of the first people who to to do that. So, and that's why that movie, like Earth versus the Spider, the beginning of the end. To a lesser extent, Deadly Mantis, those all have aged very poorly because they have terrible special effects. Um, Earth versus the spider, the spider constantly changes size. <laughs> but Earth versus the spider has also aged poorly because it's about teenagers. So it's instantly the, the, ter- the terminology, the slang, the fashion, everything's instantly dated. It's just very of its time. Yes. I will say. Of all these knockoffs of them, the only one I can recommend is Tarantula, which I watched this week. Uh, that's another one that has a lot of good talent behind it. That was directed by Jack Arnold. He directed The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, 
The Incredible Shrinking Man, and um, Anthony, a film title I can't say if you look at my notes. Yep, I see it. Uh, Boss nigger. Yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm familiar. I've heard. It. I'm familiar. Yeah, he's black. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm black. Yeah, y'all can't see me. I'm a black man. Just I'm FYI, a black man. Uh, that's a and good movie, is, by the way. Hey, we're, that's yeah, we're good... just reading movie titles here. I've heard of it. I've never seen it though. It's really good. Uh, it's kind of Blazing Saddles played straight. That's the vibe I always got from it. Like, you know, like having like that black Western, but it's like, it's real, it's a real badass like character. Yeah. That, that's, um, that is also, that is Fred Williamson and, uh, what's his name? Deville Martin. Uh, I recommend. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. And not to, if you want to see that movie, everyone, uh, if you type it, I, if you type in the full name, I don't know if you'll get it. Um, it's usually sold as boss. Yeah. But when you watch the movie, it still has the dope theme song. <laughs> which oh, has yeah, most of the movies at that time, for sure, dude. The which, soundtracks were as good, if not better, than the movies. But Tarantula is a great movie that has very good special effects for these real tarantulas, and this very good composite shots. And yo, that tarantula is big. <laughs> yeah, I know uh, a lot of people that probably won't watch that one. Then. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um. It's one of the only ones where it's not nuclear radiation. It is some kind of enzyme they're using to make, to make giant food. Um, it also has Clint, one of Clint Eastwood's first roles, if you want to see Clint Eastwood for five seconds. But I recommend Tarantula, but all the rest of them, Black Scorpion, Begin of the End, Deadly Mantis, The Monster That Challenged the World, Earth vs. the Spider, The Monster from Green Hell, Cosmic Monsters, those are all bad. Now, if you want to get drunk and riff them, Mystery Science Theater style, you know, you do you. If you can tolerate Mystery Science Theater in, in, in 2023 and don't, unlike me, because I hate Mike Nelson, you do you. Um, but I would skip all those. And if you, if you, if you really want to keep on a good movies about nuclear paranoia or science paranoia involving insects, watch The Fly. <laughs> Isn't Vincent Price in the original one, in The Fly? Yes, Vincent Price is in the original Fly. Um, he is not yeah. The Fly. He is a friend. Uh, That's right, yeah. The Fly from 1958 is a dope movie. Um, That's another one my dad let me watch when I was a kid. Uh, Fantastic. Everything about that movie is great. That movie is gorgeous. The special effects are fantastic. It is macabre and disturbing for the time period, which which makes you realize more why why the remake is so fucked up. Uh, oh yeah, the re- remake is a very hard movie to watch if you have a very weak stomach for yes. gore. <laughs> and I do want to watch the sequels to The Fly. I have a, I have a box that with all of them. I want to I want to dive into The Flies. Uh, but that that's a great one. And then after that, you know, I like giant monster films, but you got to go to I think Kaiju kind of take it over. And it is a bummer in my opinion nowadays. Like if you want to see a giant monster film, nine times out of ten, it's some straight to video uh, Sharknado crap. Yeah, yeah, a lot of that uh, sci-fi stuff. Yeah, like the the really really bad CG and like like ice spiders or like whatever. Uh, I feel like the last one to get a big theatrical release. Well, I guess more recently, Meg. Oh yeah, yeah, the Meg, uh, which actually has a sequel coming out. Which I will see. Recording. I, I love Meg. But I, I'd say also if you go to like more recent kaiju movies, uh, I highly recommend Shin Godzilla. Yeah, Shin Godzilla is great. Um, if you want like another big monster movie that's that's kind of made with that old school style that also has a like commentary on 
you know, government and social things. Yeah, uh, yo, I hey, yo. Yeah, Shin Godzilla is about Fukushima. Just FYI. Yeah. Shin Godzilla, it is. If, in case you can't tell, you'll be able to fucking tell. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a monster movie that talks about the how the Japanese government handles things or how they don't handle things, like how, how they do things poorly. Yeah. Uh, and well, it's no, also a great monster movie while doing that at the same time. Well, Shin Godzilla is a fantastic film for a lot of reasons. The CG is not great. Um, and some of the acting's bad. But the uh, the thing I like about Shin Godzilla, because as someone who lives in Japan, mm-hmm. it's really divided into two halves. And the first half is brutally honest about how fucking pathetic the Japanese government can be about disasters. Like, mm-hmm. really just laying it on super thick, pulling no punches, blaming everyone. You all suck. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And then the second half of the movie is how America makes it worse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so how, how it's like America will get the job done, but at what cost? Uh, yeah. And I think you can't have that second half without the first half. Because if they only made it about America being dicks, then that's stupid. Because Japan is not without fault in its recent government decisions. So right. by doing both, they really it's a they 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 chastise themselves. And by doing that, getting all that out of the way, then they can really focus on America. And it's a really well-made movie. Um, yeah, I'll brought, I'll brought to you by uh, the creator of Evangelion. And it's, which, it's which got the same composer. Yeah, yeah it's a lot of the same shots. But And because we're talking about Godzilla, I almost feel like maybe kind of a good double feature be them and like the original 1954 Japanese Godzilla. You'd want to have a triple feature then what's a happy movie. That's true, true. I mean, I but just say, to kind of compare the monster yeah. movies, you know. I would say watch Godzilla first, because the first Godzilla is so fucking dark. I haven't it's... seen the original Japanese one oh. in so long. I've only seen the one where they edit in um, Raymond Burr. Yeah, I mean, that's a good version. Um, but I haven't seen the original Japanese one in, like, years, so I, I don't remember what it was There was, was like. a scene in the original Japanese version where a mom is trying to escape with her kids, and they can't make it, and she says, don't worry, we'll see daddy soon. Oh, okay. Maybe don't do that double feature. It's Y'all, fucked up. I it's stand... it a, that <laughs> that movie also deals with survivor guilt from the, from from the war. Uh, it is it is a brutal film. Um, and the Y'all, ending is brutal. Correct. Everything don't, about don't do Godzilla. The first Godzilla is a dark, fucked up, almost angry film. Uh, and then from there it gets silly, you know. And I love. Hey, Destroy All Monsters is one of my all-time films of all time. That movie's dumb as yes. shit. That's a kid's movie. Um, OG Godzilla is not a happy film. Them, them is not as sad as that. <laughs> so right. Yeah. Don't do that double feature, y'all. Bad idea. I've made a mistake no, no, here. <laughs> no, do it, but watch Godzilla first. And then watch yeah. them. And then maybe if you got time, Tarantula. Tarantula's 80 minutes long, and it's, 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 it's fluff. But, but yeah. I would I would say also if you want to see something more recent that that kind of again you mentioned that movie poster earlier, um, that John Goodman movie matinee almost shows the movies that this poster insinuates that this might have been you know. Well, I think matinee uh, that's Mant. The movie was it Mant? The movie in matinee is called Mant. Oh, okay. Because I remember Man something Ant. was there something Man Ant. Oh, that's right. That's right. And uh, that is a spoof of The Fly. And John Goodman's character is a spoof of William Castle, who, okay. who did uh, House on Haunted Hill, The Tingler, stuff like that. Um, 
uh, I that is a good movie. Matt, I haven't seen Matt since it came out. Uh, I haven't either. I just couldn't stop thinking about it watching this because you know it's like man, that's where he's you know referencing these kind of movies, and I feel like seeing that movie you know as a kid in the nineties made me appreciate these older movies even more too. Yeah, and that movie also uh, matinee is great for a lot. I mean, that's, that's Joe Dante, yeah, who did Gremlins, and uh, matinee is a great movie. Matinee is about it's about a kid who like who wants to go see this monster movie at the same time as the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it is really like he's watching these movies about nuclear paranoia at the time of most nuclear paranoia. And I remember a scene in that movie that scared my that kind of disturbed my mom where the scene in that movie where it's a dream sequence and the kid hears his parents crying and he opens the door and a nuclear bomb kills them. Oh wow. And so that movie is is it is a comedy, but it is very much uh about nuclear paranoia in 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 the nineteen fifties. That was made in ninety three. Matt's Matt's an underrated Matt Matinee's an underrated film. I'm about to add that to my list here. Uh I think the whole concept was that his his whole purpose with showing the movies also was to give people a entertaining distraction from the things that were going on at the time. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good that has that John Goodman uh, it's 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 a it's a uh, Joe Dante film, so of course Dick Miller's in it. Um, and it does have if you blink and you'll miss it. I believe Naomi Watts is in that movie. See, uh, I've got to rewatch it because I forgot her even being in it. It's well, been a long see, time. I don't. She's like she doesn't. She doesn't have a name. Okay. Yeah. See, it's her third film, so no, it's it's uh very early in her career. So, but um. Uh, before we finish up here, I forgot I have to rank this movie. So when am I going to put them? So Ooh, I love your number one pick. Well, yeah, number one is Sorcerer. But the, I'm not going to go over all this because I talked about this in previous episodes. But when I, them's going to go up pretty high. Um, is them okay? Here's a strange sort of question: Is them better than Car Wash? Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the fact that I have to sit here and, and actually consider it now. Because that's probably where it's going to go. It's around mm. there. I, mm, wow, that's tough. I'm going to say no. I, mm, they're so, they're so different they're movies. So they're different, so different, but like. They're so different. I don't know, I, but I, I'm going to, oh, well, I might move, I might move it past. I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to say. See, I, I, I was gonna say I feel like Car Wash is more rewatchable only because it's a comedy and it's a little bit lighter. Yeah, until like the end. Put Car Wash until the end. Until like <laughs> yeah. that last ten minutes. But like, I feel like you can kind of throw Car Wash on and just just kind of watch it whenever. Um, I feel like you have to be in the mood to watch them. I'm not saying that's market quality, but that's kind of how I look at it. Like, I would rewatch Car Wash probably before I rewatch them. I think soon. I will put them at number. Now, this is this is entirely subjective. This is my my list. Uh, right. I'm gonna say I'm gonna put them as my new number fourteen. So that means it is so number eleven is Horror Express. Number twelve is Cash on Demand. Number thirteen is Class of eighty four. Then them. Then Car Wash. Then Switchblade Sisters. Car Wash becomes fifteen. That's still really high. That's still, still really very good. high, and it's not cracking the top ten. It is not the highest. It is unfortunately not the highest ranked monster film. It is the fourth because Alligator is number three because Alligator is one of the greatest movies I've made, and Q and Fangs are all higher ranked monster films for me. But none of those films would exist without them. 
Yeah, no, that's fair. That makes Fangs sense bite. to me. Fangs bite, but not not Q and not <laughs> alligator. <laughs> yeah, Fangs, not alligator. No, Fangs exist in a vacuum. <laughs> Fangs is a whole different thing. It's a whole different thing. So, but uh, Anthony, do you have anything else you want to add about about these them them's? Uh, you know what? The one thing I will say, I have a lot of friends who like. I mean, clearly we we you and I are, and people listen to us are passionate about movies where. You know, if something is an older movie, we're not usually too vexed by like the fact that it's older. If we want to watch it, we're going to watch it. Um, I would say if you're not wanting to watch a movie because you're like, oh, it's older, it's black and white, you might be surprised. Um, yeah. Especially if you like monster stuff, give this a watch. You might be surprised how much you actually like it and how, except for, of course, the effects, just how kind of modern and decently paced it is. So, you know, if you don't, if you, if you haven't had a history with those older monster movies, maybe give this a try. You might like it more than you, than you think. And if you like this, I would say don't don't go watch Tarantula. But other than that, I would go, look up movies that Ray Harryhausen worked on, uh, and watch those. Watch um, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. Watch any of those stop motion ones. Those have aged a lot better. Those have more action. Uh, and you know, I would say the only way these have aged poorly really is a complete lack of people of color. <laughs> and you know what? There was one black person in the scene and I was happy, but then I got mad because he was shining shoes. <laughs> oh, fuck. I didn't see that. Fuck. I, I, well, literally, I just said, oh, there's a black guy in this movie in the 50s. I'm amazed. But he was shining shoes. I was like, oh, fucking hell. Oh, that sucks shit. I didn't see that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so portrayals of people of color and some misogyny. But uh, the misogyny is usually very light. It's, it's just like, you should be home cooking. I'm not gonna. Okay. <laughs> That's usually pretty much. Yeah. And like I said, a complete lack of people. Of, I can't think. I can't think of a giant monster movie I like where a person of color <laughs> has a speaking role. <laughs> so it's, I can't either. So. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the time. Yeah. You know, we've, we've, we've progressed as a culture, thankfully. So, yeah. And it is, it's so bad that not even the first one's killed. That's not even there. Yeah, it's just, there's no oh, one there. What's the minds me really quick? The remake. I forgot to mention. Oh. So, allegedly, there's a remake in production. Now, that can mean, in production means a lot of things. There is no cast. There is no filming. Um, in January of this year, it was announced that Michael Giacchino, the composer, was going to direct a them remake. Uh, and he said this current version of them is about immigration. I don't know how you do that. Well, here's <laughs> here's what here's what I'll say about this though. Um I would have thought that him directing it before last year would have been a strange choice but he directed a a marvel it's a, a marvel short that was a horror short last year oh yeah that yeah, yeah, was yeah. really good and it was his first i think the first thing he's ever directed i can't remember the name of it uh i think it was like i want to say it's werewolf werewolf by, by night? night was that it yes that was it yeah uh, i heard good things about that okay if you haven't seen it and you're listening to this show it has all the feels of a like 50s, 60s era horror movie with more gore. So like if you took kind of like a universal monster movie, but you let them show like like someone gets slashed or you know, whatever. Um, but 
it's kind of made in the vein of like an old school classic horror movie. It's only an hour long, maybe 50 minutes. It's worth watching. It's on Disney Plus if you have Disney Plus. But if you watch that, I think that would give him enough credit to be the kind of person to, to, to do a remake of this movie because he clearly loves this stuff. So before you write him off, I would go watch Werewolf by Night and you might be surprised at how good it is. I mean, I, I don't, I try, I don't, I have not seen that. I have no opinion on him as, on him as a director. I hope that he is a director composer because I love director composers. I, uh, and I would hate to have to be a composer for a Michael Giottino film because he's a very good composer. My issue is making it about immigration. Mm, oh, I got you. Yeah. How does that work? Because like, it's such a political topic now. Uh, yeah. I imagine, in my mind, this movie starts with immigrants vanishing. Mm, and then yeah. you find out it's yeah, giant, giant that. ants. Yeah, that uh, makes sense, actually. But even referencing like uh, unfortunately america is broken as a society now and we can't have political undertones in films so i don't know how that'll work i i i don't even know if it'll get made it's in pre it's it was announced that means nothing yeah yeah so we'll see what happens in 2028 when it finally comes out (laughs) (laughs) i think he could pull it off though just based on that one uh short yeah i I have faith in him as a director i just don't know about this who i don't know who's writing it they haven't announced that I don't know who's in it. I, I know nothing. So yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But anyway, I think that'll do it for today's episode. Anthony, as usual, can you tell people where they can find you on the internet? Yes, you can find me on Twitter at Bruce Wayne Brady and also on twitch.tv slash Bruce Wayne Brady, where I've been streaming video games lately, playing stuff from my backlog where uh, everyone's playing new stuff and I'm kind of, playing like Final Fantasy 13 and Horizon Zero Dawn, the first Horizon game, and just kind of whatever, you know, I feel like jumping into out of my backlog. But uh, yeah, so Bruce Wayne Brady pretty much everywhere online. On the, the two times a year I go to Twitch, I'll check it out. I just can't. There you go. <laughs> I, whenever I watch Twitch, I just want to stop and play video games. It's, it's fair. That's totally fair. So you can't find me on Twitch, but I want everything else is lost turntable. And I may have said this before, if you're interested in my writing, I know I don't update my blog that much anymore. I do want to get something up in the next month or so, but follow me on Letterboxd because that's what I, I review every movie I watch. Um, sometimes the review is one sentence. <laughs> um, sometimes it's, 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 it's actually, you know, in-depth, in-depth thought, thoughts, but I, I try to review every movie I watch, even if I've seen it before. And I, I, that's if you really want to get an insight into what I'm watching or a preview of what's coming up next on this show, that's the way to go. But, uh, that'll do it for today's episode. Anthony, thanks again for joining me. I appreciate it. As always, I'll be back. Thanks again. for having me. No problem. I'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, take care. <laughs>